Hello, my name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. 2020 has been a crazy year. You don't need me to tell you that. We are living through a global pandemic, the world is on fire, and to top it all off, we are in election season. So I thought I would dedicate a few episodes to look at both the candidates, the main candidates, closely. Now, my main goal with these videos isn't necessarily to sway you to vote one way or another. I do have a bias that will undoubtedly come across in these videos and, you know, I history what i've said the comments i've made about uh, certain individuals but that is not my primary goal because of this i want to get out my general feelings over both of the candidates to start at, to start with so that there is no confusion over how i feel i do not like joe biden i and i absolutely and completely resent donald trump just so there's no confusion so now that I clear that up, what is my reason for doing this? Well, there's a lot to be said about both of these men, and what better time to say them than when they are both fighting for the position of President of the United States, leader of the free world, and the most powerful person on Earth. I'm going to be focusing on different aspects of these men with these two episodes. Basically, I'm going to have sections based on what I consider to be the most interesting topics of contention regarding these two geezers. History repeats itself. Back in 2016, Americans were put in position in the position of voting, uh, you know, for what many consider the lesser of two evils. Uh, and four years later, we are put in a similar position. These past four years have been showing us exactly the kind of evil that Donald Trump embodies. A topic I'll get to next episode. So, what has Joe Biden done in the past to warrant this description as one of two evils we are faced with choosing to lead our country? Well, let's take a look. I'm not going to humor some of the criticisms levied against him solely from the far right, as that usually re resorts to him being a Democrat or Obama's vice president so nothing of substance instead i will look at some of the criticisms brought to light by those within the party or those criticisms which can be generally agreed upon by most reasonable uh, bipartisan human beings uh you know worth raising against him so let's start with the most recent uh it being the question of biden being fit to run the country due to his uh, failing mental state as evidenced by his recent gaffes and fuck-ups mark Thiessen, writing for the washington post back in march gave a pretty detailed look into some of the recent screw-ups at the time he writes quote biden recently announced i think i can win that back the house and promised to ban the ar-14 he mistook super tuesday for super thursday and forgot the words of the declaration of independence saying we hold these truths to be self-evident all men and women are created by the you know you know the thing in south carolina he misstated what office he was running for declaring my name's joe biden i'm a democratic senate candidate for the united states senate on three occasions last month uh biden declared he was arrested in south africa trying to visit nelson mandela in prison and an incident his campaign later admitted never happened. He earlier described meeting a Navy captain in Afghanistan, but the Post reported that almost every detail in the story appears to be incorrect. He claimed to have worked with Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping in the Paris Climate Accord. Deng died in 1997. He claimed during the, a debate that 150 million people have been killed by guns since 2007, which would be nearly half the U.S. population. He said he met with Parkland victims while he was vice president, even though the shooting took place after he left office. He has declared that Democrats should choose truth over facts. He pledged to use biofuels to power steamships. He repeatedly gets confused about what state he is in. Called Fox News Sunday anchor Chris Wallace Chuck said his late son Bo was the Attorney General of the U.S. and confused former Br uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May with the late Pr British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. My personal favorite Joe Biden quote was when he said this. We should challenge students in these schools to have advanced placement programs in these schools. We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids, wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. No, I really mean it, but think how we think about it. We think now we're going to dumb it down. 
They can do anything anybody else can do, given a shot. Now, we all knew what he meant, and it can be argued that his intentions were good, but the implications behind his statement uh, are more than troubling. I don't think I have to spell out why it's such a dumb statement. I think everyone can see the generalization uh, being made of racial minorities being poor, but as a disclosure, uh, Biden did seem to have misspoken as he immediately tried to save himself by correcting his use of white kids and replacing it with wealthy kids, but I see this as more than just a misspeak uh, and something more akin to a Freudian slip. You know, a perspective that could be supported by Biden's less than stellar record on race, such as when he reminisced about the type of civility found in the Senate back when he first came on the scene in the 1970s by naming what can be described as two overtly racist pro-segregation senators as people he had a great working relationship with. Um, one of these senators, uh, James Eastland, spoke often of blacks as an inferior race and opposed desegregation and the Civil Rights Act. Furthermore, as Jillian Brockwell writes for the Washington Post, Quote, in the 1970s, Biden got help from Eastland on an anti-busing bill to stop court-mandated desegregation of schools, end quote. But I think that the bigger, more lasting, uh, long-lasting effect on race relations and power dynamics that Joe Biden had on America came from his sponsorship of the 1994 crime bill, which is often attributed as being a leading factor for the problem facing our communities, known as mass incarceration, and in turn, the enhancement of, of the systemic issues that face black communities at a, dispro at a disproportionate rate. So what did this crime bill do. Now what did the bill do? Just like a lot of political compromises, there was the good and there was the bad. For example, the bill eliminated 19 types of semi-automatic assault weapons. It also provided huge amounts of funding to hire cops. 100,000 cops were funded. It was about 14 million dollars at the time for community policing. The bill also enacted the Violence Against Women Act that provided funding to protect women and victims of domestic violence and crimes against women. But the most pernicious provision of the 1994 crime bill was its 12 billion dollars that was authorized for states across the country that would enact what's called truth in sentencing laws. That funding literally paid states to increase the number of prison beds that they allocated for individuals convicted of violent crime in this country to serve 85% of their sentences behind bars. The reason that provision is so important and the reason we're still talking about it today is the federal government essentially subsidized states across the country to build more prisons. Certain people may see this as a positive, and there certainly are positive aspects to the bill, such as the Violence Against Women uh, Act that helped crack down on domestic violence and rape, a 10-year ban on assault weapons, and funding for firearm background checks. But denying that this piece of legislation has been a large part of the perpetuation of the problems this year's historic protests tried to raise awareness for is working on bad faith. Biden's tough-on-crime views of the time reflect those of the Democratic Party, which, after the passage of the crime bill, touted its tough, its tough stance on crime on its official party platform for, their, for the 1996 election and didn't really leave the platform until 2008. Quote, in 1989, at the height of punitive anti-drug and mass incarceration politics, Biden, then a senator, went on national television to criticize a plan from President George H.W. Bush to es escalate the war on drugs. The plan, Biden said, didn't go far enough. He said, quite frankly, the president's plan is not tough enough, bold enough, or imaginative enough to meet the crisis at hand. He called not just for harsher punishments for drug dealers, but to 
hold every drug user accountable. Bush's plan, Biden added, doesn't include enough police officers to catch the violent thugs, not enough pros- prosecutors to convict them, not enough judges to sentence them, and not enough prison cells to put them away for a long time. A direct call for more incarceration. End quote. The 1994 crime bill is but a single response in support of the war on drugs. Here are a few examples of the punitive legislation Biden helped enact, which were drawn from articles by Jamel Bowie from Slate and Herman Lopez from Vox. The Comprehensive Control Act is a 1984 law essentially allowed police to seize someone's property without proving the person is guilty of a crime. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 created a big sentence disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Even though the drugs are pharmacologically similar, the law made it so someone would need to possess 100 times the amount of powder cocaine to be eligible for the same mandatory minimum sentence for crack. And since crack is more commonly used by black Americans, this sentencing disparity helped fuel big racial disparities in incarceration. And the drug and the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 strengthened prison sentences for drug possession, enhanced penalties for transporting drugs, and established the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Biden's relationship with crime doesn't stop there. However, as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he oversaw judicial hearings, such as the hearing of Anita, Anita Hill, who had accused Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment and face incredible scrutiny from a committee of older white men who took this as an opportunity to trivialize Mrs. Hill's experience or to discredit her person. We're living in the most intolerant time in history in regards to sexual assault and harassment. Thanks to all the human rights activism in the past, particularly the women's rights movement of the 60s and 70s, legislation has been passed and our culture has been reformed to be more and more intolerant of any and all women's rights abuses. But this change has been incremental and the culture in 1991 certainly reflects that and marks a point in our history culturally different than the one we are living in today. Here are some of the questions and comments made by Joe Biden during the hearing. Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged? It is appropriate to ask Professor Hill anything any member wishes to ask her to plumb the depths of her credibility. I do apologize to the women of America if they got the wrong impression about how seriously I take the issue of sexual harassment. I must tell you, I must tell everyone else, I take sexual harassment seriously. And here are some of the questions asked by other members of the committee, uh, which Biden deemed appropriate. How reliable is your testimony in October of 1991 on events that occurred eight, ten years ago. How sure can you expect this committee to be on the accuracy of your statements? I guess one really does have to understand something about the nature of sexual harassment. Uh, It is very difficult for people to come forward with these things. I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? The issue of fantasy has arisen. Are you interested in writing a book? You are not now drawing a conclusion that Judge Thomas sexually harassed you. Yes, I am drawing that conclusion. That well, is then my... I don't understand. Pardon me? Then I don't understand. 
Do you have anything to gain by coming here? Has anybody promised you anything by coming forth with this story now? Furthermore, as reported by Chris Mills Rodrigo for The Hill, the then, quote, the then Senate Judiciary Committee chairman allowed Thomas to testify before Hill after initially saying Hill would get to testify first. He did not take testimony from three women who offered their own stories about Thomas, end quote. What does Biden have to say for himself now after having 30 years to reflect? Here are some of his comments from recent years, as far back as 2017, uh, as compiled by the Washington Post. She did not get a fair hearing. She did not get treated well. That's my responsibility. And I committed that I am determined to continue the fight to see to it that we basically change the culture in this country where a woman is put in a position where she is disbelieved. As the committee chairman, I take responsibility that she did not get treated well. I take responsibility for that. Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing of all the incidences that you have alleged? Yeah. Anita Hill was victimized. There is no question in my mind. At the root, this is all about the abuse of power. It's all about the abuse of power. Whether it's Harvey Weinstein or the guy who uh, the plumber who has a secretary, he, uh, uh, he harasses. Uh, it's all about the abuse of power, number one. Number two, women should be believed. I believed Anita Hill. There are a bunch of white guys. No, I mean this sincerely. A bunch of white guys hearing, hearing this testimony on the Senate Judiciary Committee. So when Anita Hill, when Anita Hill came to testify, she faced a committee that didn't fully understand what the hell it was all about. To this day, I regret I couldn't come up with a way to get her the kind of hearing she deserved. I think what she wants you to say is, I'm sorry for the way I treated you, not for the way you were treated. I think that would be well, closer. Well, but, but um, I'm sorry the way she got treated. In terms of, I never heard say, if you go back and look what I said and didn't say, I, I, I don't think I treated her badly. I, there, there are a lot of mistakes made across the board. And for those, I apologize that we, we may have been able to do and conduct it better. But uh, I believed Dr. Hill from the beginning. Mm -hmm. From the beginning. Yes. And I said it. Yeah. I said it. All those clips to me uh, reeked of self-pity. Did anyone else hear it that way? He kept trying to distance himself from his colleagues by saying that he believed her. He always believed her. But his refusal to give a direct and heartfelt apology and to show as to how he aims to combat this culture of victim blaming and normalizing sexual harassment that he not only exemplified through these hearings but also perpetuated speaks volumes. Which is a sentiment shared by Anita Hill herself who was left unsatisfied with the call she received from the presidential hope at the start of his campaign. Biden had a lot to answer to this election cycle. With almost 50 years as a public official under his belt, there's a lot to unpack and criticize. We can clearly see how Biden exemplified these aspects of a culture of sexual harassment, but what about sexual assault? Well, there are allegations. As we heard in the cl previous clip, Biden claims that we should believe women who come forward uh, claiming to have experienced sexual harassment and assault, ironically leaving us a bit confused as to how to take the sexual assault allegations directed towards
towards him by accuser Tara Reid. Here's a synopsis as found on Joe Biden's sexual assault Wikipedia page. Quote, in a March 25th, 2020 interview with Katie Halper, Reid alleged that Biden had pushed her against the wall, kissed her, put his hand under her skirt, penetrated her with his fingers, and asked, do you want to go somewhere else? Reid told National Public Radio for an, an April 19th article, quote, his hands went underneath my clothing and he was touching me in my private areas and without my consent, end quote. Reid told The Intercept her impression was that Biden believed he had consent and was surprised when she rejected him. Reid told the New York Times for an April 12th in her article that when she pulled away from Biden, he looked puzzled and said, come on, man, I heard you like me. She then said, or she then, she said, she then said he told her, you're nothing to me, nothing, followed by, you're okay, you're fine. Reid told NPR she could not remember the exact place or date of the incident, saying it was likely a basement of a D.C. Senate office building in the spring of 1993. Reid told the New York Times that after the alleged assault, she had reported about the harassment to three of Biden's aides, Ted Kaufman, Tennis Toner, and Marianne Baker, but did not mention the assault. She said that nothing happened as a result, so she wrote a complaint to a Senate personnel office, where she filled out a form to request counseling. Reid told the Associated Press that her complaint to the Senate personnel office was then was about retaliation, and him wanting me to serve drinks because he liked my legs and thought I was pretty and it made me uncomfortable, uh, with no explicit mention of sexual assault or sexual harassment. Reid does not have a copy of her Senate personnel office complaint. Reid also told the New York, New York Times that her office duties were eventually reduced and that Kaufman later said that she did not fit the office, instructing her to find a new job. However, Reid told the Associated Press that it was Toner who stated she did not fit the job and encouraged her to find another job, which the Associated Press noted, noted was a contradiction with her account to the New York Times. In blog posts in January and April 2020, she wrote that no one in Washington, D.C. wanted to hire her after her firing. End quote. More credible discreditation of Reid's character than Hill's took place, however, such as the fact that she has consistent, consistently lied under oath about her educational background in order to be accepted into undergraduate and law school. The inconsistencies in her story are also worth noting, but are they enough to discredit her accusations? I don't know. But I do know that Biden himself has been very consistent, as in he has consistently been creepy on camera around women and children. You've seen those clips, right? Him creepily greeting and talking about senators' children during a swearing-in ceremony for newly elected senators. Listen, I don't want to draw conclusions about how the allegations, his past uh, recorded treatment of victims of sexual harassment coming out, and his antics around women and children all point to him being a creep. I'm not going to say that Joe Biden is a rapist and a pedophile. I'm not going to say that. Not implying that at all. But what I am going to say is that all those examples that uh, taken individually are still shitty things that shitty people do, right? Even if the allegations levied against them aren't true. We have a video recording of him being a bitch to Anita Hill and making women and children and the men accompanying, accompanying them uncomfortable by touching and kissing them so creepily. Before I stop trying to erase the image some of you may have of Joe Biden as a lovable grandpa, I must talk about one more big important criticism against the man, and that is that he voted in support of the war in Iraq. As, ta as Tara Galshin and Alex Ward write for Vox, quote, Joe Biden says that when deciding whether to vote in favor of invading Iraq in 2002, he took President George W. Bush at his word and was led astray. He said, Bush looked me in the eyes in the Oval Office. He said he needed the vote to be able to get inspectors into Iraq to determine whether or not Saddam Hussein was engaged in dealing with a nuclear program. Biden told NPR in September, explaining his Senate vote. He got them in, and before you know it, we had shock and awe, end quote. To hear the former senator and vice president tell it, Biden was one of the many high-profile Democrats who 
voted to authorize the Iraq War after 9-11, after 9-11 attack, only to regret it immediately after. But his record, well documented in speeches on the Senate floor, congressional hearings, and press interviews from 2001 through his time in the White House, is that of a senator bullish about the war, the push to war, who helped sell the Bush administration's pitch to the American public, and of a vice president who left an unmistakable imprint on President Barack Obama's backing of a dictator in Iraq, end quote. I'm sure you're now starting to see a pattern here. In fact, two patterns. One is that Joe Biden, like any politician, refuses to take accountability for the choices he made in the past with Anita Hill, with the crime bill, with the war in Iraq. He always seems to try to weasel his way out of criticism for his decisions, only admitting defeat when backed into a corner, if at all. The other is that Joe Biden's policy and stances have been much more conservative than what we are used to seeing in a Democratic Party today, which was a point of contention during primary season and something that voters on the left are having trouble coming to terms with. For all intents and purposes, Joe is a conservative. No, I'm kidding. It's worse than that. He is a centrist. Sitting on the center left of the political spectrum, Joe's stance and proposed policies to some seem like they aren't progressive while they seem to be too progressive in the eyes of others. This is politics, right? It's how it works. This is important because Biden finds himself in a precarious position in which he so desperately needs to keep that centrist, moderate public image alive in order to obtain those swing voters, the independents and undecided voters that will decide the election, while also appeasing those moving the Democratic Party further and further left. And from looking through his planned policy on his website, he does seem to be stuck in a balancing act, you know, unable to make a too big a move, too big of a move in, you know, either direction for fear of falling off the rope. His pandering, for lack of a better term, to different group voters, such as the working class, women, military families and veterans, and black Americans is admittedly pretty impressive. This type of political juggling while towing the line between a progressive and a moderate is something our current president is less adept at, and we see that it has earned him a cult-like group of loyal followers who fall on every word he says. Although I wouldn't say this is a good thing, you have to admit that it has earned Trump social clout that no other president in recent memory has gained. So this isn't Biden's strategy, I understand that. But his stance on the center left has him in conflict with the progressive nature of left-wing politics. Some of his stances are already outdated. He had to get with the times and adopt some of the policies proposed by some of his opponents during the primary, like Bernie Sanders, whose campaign is working with Biden's through a joint task force meant to uh, form compromises in the areas of the economy, education, criminal justice, and immigration reform, climate change, and healthcare reform. You know, earlier I used it as a point of criticism that Biden was quick to com- command his compromising and, and working, you know, with bigots, but at least we get to see his consistency when it comes to his openness to compromise. I guess that's the benefit of positioning positioning yourself on a center, but how well does this strategy pay off in the long run? I mean, currently, Biden finds himself relying on moderate and anti-Trump voters, which is a large descriptor covering such voters as dissolution Republicans, anti-fascist conservatives and liberals, Democrats, etc. Almost none of which are happy. I say almost because as a seasoned politician, establishment Democrats and the Democratic Party couldn't be happier with Biden's nomination. Himself a nice compromise between a reasonable Republican and a pandering progressive. But should the party have learned from the mistakes made in 2016? Is now the right time for compromise? Biden should would say it is always the right time for compromise, providing himself a self-endorsement where so many others are missing, such as an endorsement from the American people. That was my episode on Joe Biden. This was clearly a more critical look at Joe, and Trump's episode will work the same, I think. I understand that there are voters 
voters who see some of the stuff I talked about or will talk about as positives and reasons for voting for either one of these candidates. But I think the general populace is reasonable and can understand where I come from when presenting these aspects of the candidates in a negative light, even if they believe it to be a positive one. Also, I wanted to explore more in depth why it is that Biden is seen as the lesser of two evils, similar to how Hillary Clinton was portrayed in the last presidential election, something that I rarely ever see expanded upon. There's always more dark history in these people's lives, but I thought highlighting a few of the most damning examples of these candidates' past is sufficient exploration of the claims laid against them uh, without sounding too monotonous, I think. Okay, that is it for this episode. Uh, please tune in tomorrow for part two, uh, where we will highlight some of the occurrences in Trump's America these past four years, um, as well as looking at into the cult-like following Trump has gained uh, that I mentioned earlier. So um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope you have a great day and go out to vote this Tuesday if you haven't already, as long as you stay safe and stay sane. Goodbye.